Hello, 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 my friends and fellow animal lovers. Welcome to another episode of the Story of My Pet podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Molly Kelsey. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited to have you with me today. So I'm going to tell everybody a bit more about you before we get into our conversation. Molly Mm -hmm. is an avid foster and former vet nurse. She's worked with animals for over 10 years in companion animal practice and volunteering in both New Zealand and overseas at animal sanctuaries and shelters. Wow, it sounds like you have a lot of amazing experience. Last year, she completed her post-grad studies in feline behavior and now runs her own cat behavior consulting business. She is one of the very few people working exclusively with cats in New Zealand. Her work centers around teaching owners to understand their cats better and help them thrive in their environment. She currently lives with her partner and their rat, although they're hoping to get their rat a new partner too. And when she's not working with cats, you'll find her curled up with a cup of tea and listening to a true crime podcast. Ooh, I love that. Or doing embroidery. Well, that sounds like a fun afternoon to me. Thank you, Molly, again for being here. Thank you. I'm looking forward to our little chat. It's going to be good. Yes. So you have done a lot of different things around animals. So kind of go back um, to your childhood. Is that when your love for animals started? Definitely. Uh, If you could ask my parents anything about what I loved when I was growing up, it'd be animals. I dragged them to many an animal park and sanctuary and I, I hate to say it like petting zoo when I was younger, like anything with animals. I was like, can we please go here? I will do anything so we can go here. And my poor siblings, you know, they enjoyed it initially, but after the 10th or 20th one, we're a bit over it. Um, so <laughs> I think I was living and breathing animals from a very early age. Sounds like it. Yeah, I totally get that. I was the same way. If animals aren't involved, don't, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so when, um, when did you start um, doing fostering? It would have been when I was at uni for vet nursing. So I would have been uh, 17. Uh, I started then uh, with kittens and I slowly, you know, brought home hedgehogs, uh, birds. I think there was a mouse at one point. Uh, bought home the occasional dog I found wandering, but luckily we've been able to track down the owners. And yeah, it kind of just spun on from there. I think working with animals as a job, coming across a lot of animals who needed, you know, some extra care, they just ended up at my house because, you know, if no one else is going to take them, then I couldn't not. <laughs> right. Absolutely. So you went to university to become a vet nurse. How long did you work in that area? I'd probably say about three years. I unfortunately became quite ill when I turned 20 and it got a bit hard juggling working life with hospital visits and being off work all the time. So I actually took a a, a year off to just um, reset and, you know, check where I was at. And that kind of just gave me the opportunity to move into like a more administration role, but still working at a clinic. And I did miss the nursing, but it was nice to still be able to work with animals, but in a way that my body was a bit more cooperative with. Yeah. Yeah. I think people don't realize how stressful it can be to be a veterinary, a vet tech, a nurse, all of that. And it can really take a toll on you, not just 
emotionally, but also physically. Definitely. It's um, a very uh, demanding role or field to be in. Yeah. People don't realize how, you know, you guys really become attached to the animals and taking care of them and what they're dealing with and call it compassion fatigue. You, you get exhausted just because of how much you care and want to help all the animals you see. Yeah. The mental health kind of education and awareness in the industry is slowly getting better, but I think a lot of it is the public's perception and treatment of veterinary staff Right. Until that gets healthier and, you know, there's a bit more understanding and empathy towards veterinary staff, I feel like people working in the industry are going to be fighting the uphill um, to enjoy and thrive in an environment like that. Absolutely. No, I think it's really an important thing to talk about. It. We, we've heard a lot more about compassion with um people's health with human health, um, especially after COVID and the pandemic, you know, hearing all the stories of what doctors and nurses were going through, but vets and their staff went through the same thing. You guys were having to still take care of animals during COVID and have all the precautions and you're trying to help everybody and help their animals. So yeah, it's definitely important topic for people to learn more about. Yeah, I think like a lot of other frontline workers, you know, industries like, um, catering or you know they're not kind of put on the same level as say healthcare workers not that what healthcare workers are doing isn't very high risk and you know difficult but with veterinary we were still open we were still seeing patients there was you know the added pressure and emotional toll of owners not being able to be in the clinic when treatment was being done and having to make decisions that were you know uh kind of calibrated towards you know reduced income from people due to COVID uh, that's had an impact as well on staff well-being as you know a lot of people now are having to budget and make really difficult decisions that they might not have pre-pandemic which affects the amount of care or level of care we can provide animals absolutely and it gets hard yeah for sure yeah it's hard on it's hard on the pet parents it's hard on the vet and the staff and everybody you're trying to do everything you can but you know sometimes we make we have to make decisions because of our financial situation and i actually heard a new term recently it's called economic euthanasia because people don't have aren't able to pay more for whatever it is tests treatment etc and sometimes that's the conversation that has to be had and that's very difficult for everybody involved. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that comes with pet ownership and working with animals in general is money isn't everything, but it helps. And <laughs> unfortunately, like in New Zealand, we have subsidized government health care for humans, for animals, not so much. And even if you do have pet insurance, which I always tell people, get it. It's if you don't need it, you're lucky. If you need it, you're very lucky you have it. Um, and even if you do have it, sometimes, you know, bills are racking, racking up into over 10 grand. And a lot of people, most people don't have that just sitting on the side to use. A lot of people have got to choose between feeding their families or getting, you know, their dog's leg, you know, amputated. It's really sad. Right. No, it's very true. You know, I, I have two cats and one of them is diabetic and can't find cheap insulin for pets like I mean I know it's hard to find good priced insulin for humans but for pets you know it costs a lot for us to to keep we would never not do it but it's been a struggle 
And I know I can't even imagine for someone dealing, like you said, with the major surgery or cancer treatment or something when it's in the thousands. So we have to realize how hard it is for us, but it's also hard for you guys as the ones, you know, really giving the pets the the actual health treatment that they need. Definitely. We, we only want to help and we want what's best for your pet. Um, but sometimes that is kind of governed by, you know, how much the owners can afford. Right. And that doesn't make it like, you know, we're not putting down owners or, you know, saying, you know, you're a bad owner or anything. It's just we do understand that there is a cost and there is a line for 99.9% of people. There is a line of how much. And then there's also if we do treat them, what quality of life will they have afterwards? Or are they at an age where they might pass away within a few months regardless of this treatment being done? You know, there's all these factors to consider um, and money is just one of those ones that is very difficult to right. kind of navigate. Yeah. It's not a black or white decision. There's a lot mm-hmm. going into it. And like you said, pets age and their overall health. Sometimes, you know, there's a list of issues they have because of a new diagnosis or treatment that, you know, maybe you don't expect or anticipate. Yeah. There's so much to consider. So what made you decide to go from working in a vet office or center into doing um, cat behavior work? I think it was a combination of my own experience with fostering cats over the years and then one of my own, my only foster fail ever. Uh, He was a very unique cat. And then just coming across a lot of cats who were suffering mentally and the owners were also suffering because they didn't understand why their cats were behaving the way they were. And they'd be asking for help from their veterinarians, their vet techs, their vet nurses. And a lot of us aren't trained in behavior as much as we would like to be. And often people only come to us for that sort of help when it's got really bad, when it can no longer be ignored uh, and that that is another challenge in itself. And I just came across so many cats and owners that needed help. And I knew that, you know, there were trainers and behaviors out there for dogs in New Zealand are plenty, like in the US. Right. But when I looked at finding people who could assist with cats with some of my clients, there were very few people that were qualified or educated to provide that service. And I just sat down and I was like, hmm, I could do that. And kind of just rolled on from there. That's great. Yeah, I think, like you said, where you are here in the U.S., I think worldwide, we hear a lot more about dog behavior and dog training and puppy school, whatever you want to call it. But you don't hear that as much for cats. And cats are different than dogs and they have their own, you know, their behavior changes mean something different than another animal would mean. So I'm sure it is a very specialized area. Yeah, they're, they're very unique. I, I actually think they're a lot more like people than dogs are. And I don't know what that says about people who don't like cats. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Um, they remind me of people more than dogs do. Um, yeah. I love them both. But yeah, I think I've always they've always fascinated me. Yeah, you know, I did. I grew up with dogs. I didn't have my first cat till I was 25. And then I was like, why have I not had cats? They're my people. <laughs> Yeah, but it is a very different behavioral experience. So to become a cat behaviorist, what what kind of process or schooling did you go through? So I did two and a half years of study with the International Society of Feline Medicine. 
They're based in the UK, so I did it via distance, which suited me quite well because I could just do it alongside work at the same time. Right. And then I did a few more um, kind of upskilling courses and things like that afterwards. I earned my Fair Free certification. I think I finished it about a month ago, finally. (laughs) So I did that. And then uh, in New Zealand, there's very little legislation for becoming certified. At the moment, the only way that I'm aware of is to become certified with an organization called the International Association for Animal Behavior Consultants. And I'm about two years into the four years required to sit that uh, oh. certification exam. So I'm <laughs> just chipping away. Um, it's a lot easier for people who work with dogs. I don't know if that's just because of the sheer volume uh, and also the sheer volume of education providers versus cats. Right. But I'm hoping in the future it's going to be a lot more, you know, wider spread. For now, yeah, kind of just chipping away at that time. But it'll come around way quicker than I probably expect. Right. Yeah, that is a that is a long time for, you know, to become certified. But I'm sure, like you said, it is partly because there just aren't as many options out there for cat behaviorists. But I'm glad there are people like you who are kind of pioneering it and trying to help, you know, get more people involved. Um, to be able to help our cats. Yeah, I, I think it's really important that if you are going to do anything where it is related to behavior and more of just animal welfare, that you do learn from the right people and you do take the time to invest in your education. Because at the moment, anyone could go online and call themselves a behaviorist, which is very scary. And they yeah. could be telling someone some advice that's very harmful and potentially dangerous not just to the animal, but to people. And that's really scary. Even with cats, I've come across some really interesting advice that people have been told, uh, which I was like, okay, that's a red flag (laughs) about that person. But I mean, at least in New Zealand, there's, there's very few people. So I kind of know you know, who I suggest to people if, you know, they're not, if they want to see someone in person and they're not in my city or, um, you know, they need someone who's um, a veterinarian as well. So I can right. be like, these people is who I'd recommend. In the States, I can imagine it's a lot harder to narrow down because of sheer volume of people. Yeah, I see a lot more people saying they do different kinds of training and behavior things, definitely. And it's growing, which is good. But it's also like you said, how you know you want to make sure you get someone who who really is trained well and is going to give you the right advice because you know you can do something pretty easily to make a situation worse and not better. Yeah, and you can do things that make the situation better for you, but worse for your animal. Right. Things like I've seen people using, you know, like shock collars or, um, yeah, things like that where they're like, oh, he stopped doing problem A. And it's like, okay, but how is your cat feeling about that? Right. Yeah. So I I still can't believe people still use those, but I digress. Yeah. Oh, my Um, gosh. I can't believe that either. Yeah, there's so many things. It's like, like you said, red flag. Yeah, and there's trainers that still advocate for them in like prong collars in New Zealand, and <laughs> don't understand how yeah. how that how that works with their, you know, with training for a happy and healthy animal. So, what are some of the behavior issues that you see in your clients that you're helping their cats with? I see a lot of aggression cases where we've got cat on cat aggression. 
aggression towards people, um, aggression towards other pets or, you know, animals walking past, like a dog walking past. I do deal with quite a few just general multi-cat tension failed introductions where people have brought a kitten home and the 10-year-old cat has gone, no, thank you. And after a few months, the owners are pulling their hair out, trying to figure out what mm. they've done wrong. And then, you know, like house soiling and spraying, those are very common. And I've seen, I think COVID has brought this new wave of separation anxiety mm. and just general unease with some of these cats that, you know, were raised and that those first few formative months or first, you know, six months in right. lockdown or the owners were working from home and they're like, okay, this is our routine. This is what we're doing. And then the owners were like, cool, lockdown's over, restrictions lifted and went back to work and went out again. And the cats kind of weren't given an adjustment period. Um, I've seen a few cases of that, which I didn't really think about the repercussions of this pandemic on pets until I started working with these cats who were affected. No, that makes sense. I know um, for me personally, I'm a pet sitter and my business became busier when people started going back to work because they had adopted animals during. And, you know, it definitely is a big change for them if they're used to having one or more people home 24-7. So I can imagine with cats, especially because they get a certain level of attention when someone is home all day versus them being gone for eight or 10 hours a day at work. Yeah, there was also, not as common, but there was reverse cases where cats didn't like people all of a sudden being home 24-7. Oh. <laughs> they were used to having, they were used to having, you know, the whole house to themselves for five or six hours a day. And then suddenly the whole family was home. Yeah, I hadn't and, even thought of that. Yeah, some cats were like, no, and they went nope. and moved next door. And <laughs> yeah, it was just, I felt bad for these people, but I, I did think it was kind of not funny, but. I was like, oh, I never would have thought a cat's like, oh, more attention. But, you know, yeah, like, all cats are different. Me. <laughs> yeah, and I, I guess that come down to, you know, cats, they love their routine. They don't like change yeah. and they like to have a choice. So I guess when that imposed lockdown happens, that does not happen. The choice gets taken away. Yeah, no, that's true. Cats are very much routine. And when it's different, they don't like it and they're going to let you know. And def and also just individual cat personality. Some cats are more like they don't care if someone's around as long as you're not bothering them. But others want a very quiet, you know, space. Yeah, I, I like to think that there's the perfect cat for every person out there and vice versa. Perfect yeah. owner. Um, cats are so diverse in their personalities and experiences and, you know, what makes them thrive and what doesn't much like us. And I think that's what makes, you know, when you form a special bond with certain cats, it's just like you click on a whole nother level. And I've had the privilege of meeting a lot of cats who have this sort of bond with their owners. And it's been really humbling to experience. Yeah. So we sometimes refer to it as our soul cat or our soul mm. dog, where Whatever it is that brought you together and they just click. Yeah. My husband has that with one of our cats, Charlie. He didn't want me to bring him home and then they became BFFs. <laughs> Happens so. way too often. Yes, just it, 
it is amazing. I think sometimes people who have never had a cat don't realize that you can have that kind of bond with your cat, just like a dog. They really do are there for your support and you're there for them, but you can also see changes in their behavior that are red flags that something's going on with them because they're not acting normal. Yeah, definitely. It's, um, I often say to people like, you know, your cat best, even if you don't think so. It's sometimes stuff that we don't even register that we've noticed. And it's not until someone asks the right questions that we go, oh, yeah, they do do that. Or, oh, I have noticed he's doing less of this. Um, And that's part of my job is just helping people see what they're already seeing and understanding why it's happening. So what would you say to people who they're starting to notice some behavior changes in their cat? What would you say, you know, might be the first things for them to do? I would say to get a full physical exam with a veterinarian. A lot of behavioral issues can be due to, uh, you know, a physiological issue, uh, like arthritis. If a cat isn't using a litter box all of a sudden, if its joints are causing issues, it might not want to step into a high-sided box. A cat that's aggressive to people when they go near its face, it might be having vision issues. Mm. And then when people get up close, it gets a fright. So I always tell people, rule out physical before moving on to the psychological. And then from there, just getting a help as soon as you are able to. Um, it's always better to, you know, seal up a wound while it's fresh than when it's, you know, fested for a while. It's, it's going to be more work the longer you leave something because if it's, a you know, a habit or a behavior that's not wanted, the more times it happens or occurs, the stronger it's going to be and the longer it will take to kind of break that or shift that. No, I think that's great advice because yeah, the longer we let something go, I mean, even with ourselves, the longer we let ourselves go without exercising or eating, right? Whatever it is, the harder it is to make the change. And it's the same thing with, with pets. Absolutely. The first question is, is there something physiologically wrong? Um, I've had times with several of my cats where their behaviors have changed where it has been, And then also we couldn't find anything. Okay, so something else is going on. So that's really great um, advice. Really, you got to rule out the physical first and then see what's going on with them psychologically. Definitely. And sometimes it's something that's not even too intricate or complicated. It could be you don't have enough water bowls in the home and one of your cats is kind of stationing themselves by the only water bowl. Mm -hmm. And then the other cat is getting stressed because they can't get water. So they start spraying in the lounge because they can't get to the bowl in the kitchen. Yeah. That's that. Yep. You know, um, I had a cat, I guess it was over five years ago now that we did eventually find out that he had cancer, but we couldn't find anything wrong at first, but he started wanting to go to the bathroom in the closet and then he wanted, and then that's the only place he would go. So we had to feed him there and give him water. Well, then the other cats decided they really liked having a water dish in the bathroom. <laughs> so even though, he passed away and it's been years since he was there. We still have a water bowl in, in the master bathroom. Our cat, Charlie, now who's diabetic, he'll lay there and let us know I need fresh water. And that's really the only place he drinks from now. So, you know, that's a really easy example of something where, especially in a multi-cat or multi-pet home, that there can be a simple fix to help. Definitely. It's, yeah, understanding what they need from us and from their environment, because, We've placed them in our homes and if they're going to live there happily, we need to make sure that we've got all their needs met past the bare, you know, welfare requirements. Um, 
you know, physically having water in the house is a welfare requirement. Being in a state where you feel safe to access it, Hmm. that's another level to it. Right. No, I like that. So you've talked about you've done a lot of work fostering and things like that. So you've probably done a lot of experience seeing people bring a new pet into a family, whether it's their only pet, their first pet, or adding another pet. What, what is some of the advice you give to people before adopting or in the process of adopting a new pet? First, I say to people is, your, if you have current pets, will they enjoy this new addition to the home? Not will they tolerate or learn to live with it. It's will their lives either remain the same or thrive even more. Um, Often we get a pet because we're like, oh, we want another pet because we love having this one. And sometimes that goes well, sometimes it doesn't. And a lot of people have good intentions where they'll get a young pet to help their older pet be a bit more active or, you know, engage a bit more in life. And sometimes that does work. Sometimes it backfires <laughs> terribly. Um, so I have to tell people is to, you know, put your own wants aside just for a second and to kind of not put yourself in their paws, but just to think if I bring home this new pet and say the introduction goes well, are they going to be better for it? And then I think that often changes the tune of, what pet or what age pet they would be getting if they are going to still get one. And then just not rushing in the introduction process. It's the number one thing that we people mess up is we're impatient and we want everyone integrated as soon as possible and best friends and, you know, like Instagram worthy really fast. But sometimes it can take months um, of slow introduction process and that can be hard for us, but, in the long run, it's better for everyone, it's safer, and you're more likely to have two pets that have positive experiences with each other rather than some negative ones which kind of colour things a bit in a negative way for the long term. Yeah, that's great advice. I think that's so important, especially when adding a pet to an existing for a family is, is this about what you want or is it going to make your pet's life better? And sometimes we don't know until we try. Yeah. But definitely you want to think about your current pets first. Um, I know I've had the same thing myself. One of our cats doesn't like other cats much. And I would love to bring home a new kitten, but I don't think it would help him very well. It would probably make him more anxious and unhappy. And even though I'd love more, it's probably the best decision not to for now. And that can be difficult. Like you said, when people are pet lovers and they want to help, they want to rescue. But you really have to think about your situation and your environment. And if you are going to try it, like you said, a long process of introducing them is best because then the, the cats or the dogs or what, whatever animal you have is probably going to let you know how it's going. And if they want to get together sooner, that's great. But if they're saying no, then you want to give them that space and that time. Yeah, letting them dictate how fast things go. Um, you know, not setting a timeline that's based on human wants or needs keeping their well-being kind of at the forefront of things and that looks different for individual animals being put together or even just bringing a new animal home and integrating it into the family of people some cats are you know scratching to get out of the base camp room from the first day and are confident walking around the house 
And then there's other cats who take a week to come out from under the bed in the spare room where you've put them. So it's kind of managing our expectations as well. Absolutely. Yeah, a lot of times the the pets are going to dictate it. Their personalities, you know, how much they want to be out. I've seen that happen, you know, on pets I follow online where we kept them separated, but they knocked it down and wanted to get get to be a part of each other and other people like they've decided this is their room and that's where they feel safest for now so those are really important points for people to think about ahead of time you also mentioned that you know you've had other kind of pets you have a rat currently you've lived with um you've had a rabbit for what is it like having different kinds of pet in one family and and helping them all get along what have you learned about that process Definitely learned to be a bit more inventive about keeping everyone kind of occupied, especially with uh, like having smaller like prey animals like rats and then you've got cats in the same house and dogs in the same house. Right. Uh, Luckily with my dog who passed away earlier this year, he grew up with everything. Like he must, I think by the time he got to 13, I was like, no more fosters for you because I think he'd, he'd he'd had enough. I think he was a bit sick of it. And just keeping everyone occupied. Um, I was lucky. He never really was bothered about the rats. He got used to them very early when they came home. But I know that some people do struggle with having prey animals with an animal that would go after them. If, you know, in the wild, if they saw that animal and they were looking for food, they would chase after them. Right. Or they'd want to play with them as a toy, you know, that sort of thing. You see a lot of toys for animals that are shaped like other animals, like yeah. mouse toys. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, That's so true. Like, especially cats and mice and rat that they're used to, you know, their toys looking like them. So that would be a dynamic you'd have to be very much prepared for. Yeah. We, when we had um, at my last flat, my flatmate had a cat Bowie and he's wonderful. I love him so much. He would sit on the windowsill and just watch the rats. We never left them unsupervised. They would always be in the cage and he'd just watch them and he'd try and get into their um, food container under the cage. I think he was more interested in that, to be honest, (laughs) but I would always say people just watch, just monitor for safety and don't look at someone else's rabbit and cat on online and go okay every single rabbit and cat is going to be like that right um because because they're not bowie loved rabbits he was best friends with a rabbit called freya they would groom each other and play and chase one another but that's that's not going to be the case for every rabbit and cat and i think having that kind of expectation can be potentially dangerous and you just end up disappointed if it doesn't end up that way Right. Yeah. Because then you end up having to maybe rehome one of the pets that you were bonded to, but it's better to think about those things to start with than have something bad happen, you know, later on that can hurt one of the pets or yourself. Yeah. Or keeping them separate. Uh, you got to look at like how big your house is and the layout and yes. all those kinds of things. Um, having animals kind of sequestered to different parts of the house also adds, you know, a bit more work, keeping everyone, you know, interested and occupied and feeling like they have enough attention right yeah my my fur family currently includes a rescued possum 
but he is in a well-made cage with the lock that he can't get out of and the cats get get into and they don't really mind each other sometimes i'll catch them watching each other or they'll like to watch the possum eat or something but as long as we know they can't get to each other that's the most important thing is all of their safety yeah we have possums here in new zealand but they're considered a pest unfortunately they um, um yeah. they're, con- they're considered that here in the u.s as well oh, okay yeah no yeah. it was complete accident my my husband um rescued a baby possum from being inside a school and so there was no family and no area to release him in so now he lives in our house (laughs) yeah it, it happens it's one of those things yeah so we talked a little bit about rabbits you and you had mentioned to me a rescue in Auckland New Zealand that helps rabbits called raining rabbits rescue you want to talk a little bit about them yeah so it was a couple of years ago they started, I believe, but Joe had to correct me on that one. And they do amazing work uh, in Auckland and in New Zealand in general. There's a lot of misinformation and just low standards of care for rabbits. We have a lot of backyard breeding operations. A lot of people don't get their rabbits vaccinated or desexed, oh, or they okay. buy them for their children and don't realize, you know, they're a potentially 10 year commitment and they need a friend, and they need a lot of room and a lot of activities. And so we end up with a lot of rabbits that are dumped or rehomed, um, which is really sad. It's really awful and completely man-made. And so raining rabbits are based in Auckland, where I live, and they do an amazing job of rescuing and advocating for rabbits. And they do adoptions, and all their rabbits are desexed and checked over and vaccinated. And yeah, they just do a lot of work about bringing awareness and encouraging, you know, good rabbit care, um, going beyond the bare minimum. You know, a hutch in the back garden with no attention is no way for anyone to live. And they do a lot of work just helping people better the lives of their rabbits. And I, I really admire them because it's a very emotional position to be in a very you know taxing and sometimes it can be very thankless if people you know don't appreciate all the work you're doing or don't reciprocate the same as people would with like cat charities or uh, dog charities we have those so many here Uh, not that they are needed right but rabbits are often overlooked along with you know a lot of small animals guinea pigs rats for example like fish they're often overlooked and not considered on the same kind of level of who deserves help or, you know, who deserves my compassion and care and financial assistance. That's so true. Sometimes, you know, we know a lot about a certain kind of animal like dogs or cats even, and, you know, people can have all sorts of pets, but they all need to be treated the same. They all need to be given the same respect and care And it sounds like backyard breeding is a big thing in your area for the rabbits. And oftentimes when we find out about breeding like that, they aren't taking care of them as well as they should be, or they're not giving them the the vet care they need. So that sounds like amazing animal rescue, raising rabbits rescue. And we will, I will post their links in the show notes so people can learn more about them and I'll tag them on social when this episode comes out. So Anybody who's a rabbit lover or wants to learn more about rabbits, you know, can learn from them and and help educate other people as well. So as we wrap up our conversation, I have to say I've learned a lot 
<laughs> from you about cat behavior. I, I consider myself a certified cat lady, but I can always learn more. And I think that's the important thing for listeners to hear is no matter how you've been a pet lover your whole life, you can always learn more to make your the lives of your pets better. And it's always great to reach out to people who have information, who have training, whether it's a vet or a behaviorist or whatever it may be. Give your pets their best life. It's always good to reach out for help if you're not sure how to handle a behavior change or something like that. Yeah, it's it's okay to ask for help. I get a lot of people who are like, oh, it's too embarrassed, you know, to do anything about it. And you don't have to be there. It's okay to not know what's going on or understand something like I'm not a mechanic so if something's wrong with my car I don't get it you know there's no logic to me being embarrassed or feeling like I don't deserve help for my car it's just someone else is trained in that so yeah I mean not that an animal's a car but (laughs) but you you know just like we take care of our houses or our cars our human kids ourselves yeah exactly you know, when we when we adopt a pet, we're adopting them for their life and we're committing ourselves to give them the best life possible, whether their life expectancy is three years, 10 years, 20 years. We have to Definitely. be pre- prepared for that. And one thing I did want to ask you about before we finish up is I know you mentioned you have a heart cat named Frodo that you lost a few years ago, but it sounds like you guys had a really special bond. Yeah, he was... Uh- my one of my bestest friends he was wonderful someone brought him into my clinic when he was about four weeks old and he was found with some chemical burned on his body and he was found under a truck in an industrial parking lot and they couldn't find any other kittens or the mum, so they brought him in and he looked terrible but he was a little fighter and he hated being in um, the cages he'd like push his face against the bars to get out so I ended up having him in like a little, um, almost like a little basket cage and he'd sleep beside my bed at night Mm -hmm. and he slowly recovered and he had a couple of issues, dental issues. So he ended up like a gummy bear as a kitten with like one or two teeth on each side up and down. (laughs) And despite that, he just turned into the most lovable boy and me, I, I couldn't rehome him. My mum was like, okay, yeah, we can't rehome this cat. And so we kept him and he just turned into the most wonderful cat. And he lacked a few cat skills. Like he wasn't the best at playing. Um, I think that's just a lot of things with kittens that are raised just on their own with no other cats to kind of learn from that socialization that yes. they miss out on. Uh, but he was so quirky and just he was more like a dog, to be honest. A lot, a lot yeah. of this kind of things, he was more like a dog, to be honest. And yeah, I lost him when he was about six years old due to a acute uh, kidney failure. And yeah, that was really hard for me and my family to go through because he was one of us. And I, yeah, I think he really helped shape me into the, the cat person I am today. So I'm, I'm very grateful to have met him. Sounds like you guys had an amazing bond. I'm very sorry you lost him so young. That can be difficult to deal with. Yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's out of your control. Um, and it's just one of those things when you, you know, you love someone, there's that risk of losing them in a really untimely way. But it kind of reminds you to just every day, if you're lucky enough to have someone, be a human or a pet, to love who loves you back, you're very lucky. 
You're very Absolutely. lucky to have that. Yeah, with any relationship, like you said, human or pet, we never know how long we're going to have them. And especially with our pets, we know their lives are shorter than ours, but they can get sick easily just like any human can. And I think that's an important thing. The grief can be hard and overwhelming, but all those moments you had with them make up for, you know, you losing him in the end, I think. Definitely. Yeah, it was so many, so many good memories in such a short amount of time. So, yeah. no. And it sounds like he kind of inspired you to become the cat counselor you are now and help other people have, you know, great relationships with their cats. Yeah, his quirks definitely kind of gave me a bit of insight into, you know, how socialization and cats or lack of can shape how they experience life later on and how they react to things. So I feel like that helped me um, understand my clients' cats better. Yeah. Our, our, our pets can be our greatest teachers sometime, and then we can use what we learn to help other pets and other yeah, pet sure. parents. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Molly, thank you so much for being here. It was great to meet you virtually all the way in New Zealand um, with me in California. I love meeting people around the world and hearing their pet stories. And I think you've given us a lot of great information for pet parents, for cat moms and cat dads out there. Um, if you're struggling or you're, you want to learn something more about your cat, definitely check out Molly at the Cat Counselor. And I will link your information in the show notes as well. And I just really appreciate your time today being here with me and and talking all about our amazing cats and other pets. Yeah, it's been a blast. Thank you for having me. I'm always keen to talk about cats and animals in general. Yeah. All day. All day. If if people have, (laughs) if people, yeah. I'm sorry, you don't want to hear about my cat? Well, then you've come to the wrong podcast (laughs) or dog or horse or whatever it is. We'll talk, we talk about all the pets. But yeah, if listeners out there have questions about their own cats, their own pet behavior that they're seeing, please, when I post this on social, you'll be able to comment and um, maybe Molly and I can do a live together and answer some of your questions at the same time. So that would be great. I really appreciate your time and your willingness to help others. Not any time. Um, yeah, I love doing what I do and helping animals and their owners is, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege. I love it. Absolutely. Okay, listeners, I will see you next time. Thanks for being here.